we thank you for your great gift of salvation. We also thank you that you work all things together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And of course, we understand that we only love you because you first loved us and saved us. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity and this privilege and responsibility to pray, to literally, and we don't see it, but you know, spiritually, in a spiritual reality, the scriptures tell us we come into your presence spiritually. Lord, when we recognize you and we know we are in you and you've given us your spirit, Lord, and you've sealed us and given us eternal life. And how do we know all these things? Because your great and precious promises in your word confirm it unto us and we can rest in your promises being in Christ and we thank you Father we thank you that you answer all our prayers that there's two parts of prayer one is to worship acknowledge you prayers of thanksgiving for all that you've done for us all you will do and are doing for us but also Lord asking and Lord, we trust and believe that according to your word, you, you do give us, you do answer our prayers, but help us to also remember to submit ourselves to you and you answer them according to your good will and purpose. So Father, we ask that for all who are here, Lord, first and foremost, that you help us to put aside, you know, the, just other, other thoughts that would, distracting thoughts or things, Lord, help us to focus on you right now, Lord. Lord, we ask that for any of us needing supply, Lord, that according to your word, you, you'd give us all we need, Lord. For those seeking wisdom, that you'd give us those to be able to make decisions. For those struggling with some kind of physical ailment, Lord, we pray for healing and strength, Lord, and comfort. And Lord, for those of us with lost loved ones, we pray for their salvation. And Lord, now as we come to you in song, offering you the fruit of our lips, Lord, thanksgiving praises to your name. Lord, we ask that you be glorified among us and bless us, Lord. And as we listen, as we worship you also to be attentive to your word, may according to your word, it bless us and build us up and transform us that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Please stand. We begin our service today. We open it with Holy, 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 and number two.
you can turn your Bibles for our scripture reading to Acts chapter number 15. And we will be reading verses 22 through 34. Beginning in verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For so much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the great privilege it is to be gathered together to worship you and give you praise, to give you honor and glory. And we thank you that you have given to us the Bible that we can now open and study and hear. And Lord, we know that we live in a world where there is many voices, many different things that we hear. But Lord, we pray that we would be guided by the lamp and the light of your holy word. Through the preaching and teaching of your word, work in us, we pray, to make us more like Jesus. Renew our hearts and minds. Give us a right worldview according to the word so that we would know how to interpret all things that we see and hear. And Lord, so that we would know how we are to live. And we pray that you would use us mightily for your glory until Christ returns or until you take us to be with yourself. We ask your blessing now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, good to be together this morning again, brethren, with our Bibles in our hands. Isn't it wonderful that um, we have God's word, amen? We don't have the preacher's opinions. We, we would like to hear from God himself, and we're certainly thankful to that, for that this morning. And here we are, brethren, right in the middle of uh, 
the inspired narrative that Luke penned by the hand of God concerning the early church. And of course, uh, as Bible-believing Christians, amen, we want to look at the book of Acts, we want to see what the early church did, and then we would like to, of course, what? We would like to mimic ourselves after that. We would like to do what they did. The Bible doesn't change. What the church does is never change and will never change until he returns, obviously. And we've come to a very uh, most, at least uh, in my view and in the view of many, a most important portion of Scripture. And uh, so this morning we're going to delve in. The Spirit of God directed King David to write these blessed words. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down into the skirts of his garments. And as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. We remember that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He prayed these most holy words. He said this, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And I want us to notice, brethren, many times we will look at Scripture. Did you hear the caveat that the Lord Jesus just placed in his prayer there? He's speaking of those who will, what, believe the truth. So that's caveat number one, that there's truth that must be believed, amen? So he says, uh, for those who are sanctified through the truth. So it's the truth of what, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, his word, obviously, that we are sanctified. We talked about it in Bible study this morning. I want you to hear caveat number two as the Lord is praying in his high priestly prayer. Neither I pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So that's caveat number two. Number one, there's a truth. And number two, those who believe on who? On him, on Christ. So there's two caveats there. This just isn't, you know, carte blanche. This is for everybody. This is those who believe the truth and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, why is that important? Listen as he continues in his prayer. And he says this five times in this prayer that they all may be one. Do you hear that there? So there's truth. There's truth who? The Lord Jesus Christ, that they all may be one in that. Amen? That's the caveat. He doesn't say it once. He says this, As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Again, the truth and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us one within the Lord Jesus Christ, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So again, we see this unity there. There's a unity within the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen how he continues. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Again, there's we are again. There's this unity that is brought through the truth and through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only through that, brother. It's an amazing thing. Look what he says here again in verse, as I continue it. I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one. There it is again five times. That the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now again, the caveat is the truth. The caveat is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes every believer, every believing one who believes in him and trusts in him as one with the Father. Now, this morning in our text, we're going to see this. This is exactly what our text is talking about. Unity within the truth. Unity within the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't like Francis Chan, brethren. Okay, and I know people, oh, like, he's so mean all the time. He's mentioning names all the time. 
Francis Chan, as you know, graduated from John MacArthur School. Amen? He graduated out there. He is now last seen at the feet of some Catholic priests washing their feet, repenting because he didn't believe like the Catholic Church believes. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the kind of unity we're talking about. We're not also not talking about The Chosen. Who's familiar with that movie, The Chosen? You run as fast as you can away from that. Do you understand who's behind that, brethren? You know who the Left Behind series, you remember that series when it was written? The son of, the, of the, one of the co-writers of the Left Behind series is behind The Chosen. And he has been interviewed on many occasions stating this. In fact, the Mormon church has said, well, you're a fierce defender of the Jesus of the Mormons. Well, brethren, that's another Jesus. That's another spirit. That, that's an unholy thing. You know, they believe Jesus was what? Created as a created being. He is not. That takes away from the eternal sonship of Christ. They believe the Father was created as well. I don't worship that Jesus. I'm not unifying around that Christ. I'm not unifying around that kind of doctrine. But it's an amazing thing. Charles Spurgeon wrote something interesting when I was studying this out. And I want you to consider this. And uh, again, as a pastor and an elder and one who's been a Christian in churches for many years, this has always stunned me. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote from the other perspective. Did you ever hear that the devil and his confederates quarrel? You know what? You never read in scripture of that. Never. You know who's quarreling? The church. It's an amazing thing to behold. Spurgeon says, you don't see his confederates quarreling. There is a vast host of those fallen spirits, but how marvelously unanimous they ever are. It's stunning when you think about it. They are so united that at any special moment, if the great black prince of hell wishes to concentrate all the masses of his army at one particular point, it is done at the tick of a clock. Now again, brother, there are some things worth fighting. We're in the middle of a text that Paul himself stood in a fighting position. There are some things, some fundamental Bible things that we must fight for, we must fight about, we must have that discussion. But it's not against true believers. Again, it's those who have believed, those who have trusted in Christ that make us one. It's an amazing thing when you think about that. One of the first principles from God, brethren, one of his first principles as it pertains to salvific matters is this, a confederation, a holy unity that marks those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, who have trusted in the Son of God. There is a unity that should be there, brethren, one that is bound by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Mormons can't sing holy, holy, holy. You can't sing that if you don't believe in the Trinity of God, and they do not. It's a stunning thing. This is what we're going to see this morning in our text. This is exactly what Paul and Luke is writing about this morning. Paul and Barnabas and Judas, we see these men. These are the things that they were unified around. Now, we can have different opinions. I taught Wednesday night. I have a particular eschatological view, and it's one that's fairly popular, I believe, but I also know there's brothers who have others. Amen? Brothers, good brothers, who have other positions that they take on the eschatological view. They're still my brothers. They're still in the Lord because they've trusted in him. They've, they've if you will, been made one by the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ with us. But there are some who are not, clearly. It is those who are indwelt by the biblical spirit concerning the biblical gospel 
which, are, uh, which one must be saved by the biblical Christ alone that I am unified with this morning. And this is what we see in our text. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 15. Look at verses 22 and 23. We'll work our way down through these uh, verses ever so gingerly, I guess, if you will. Look at verse number 22. Then it pleased. Now, brethren, that's a most interesting portion of Scripture for us. Then it pleased the apostles and elders and the what? The whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Amen. Look at verse 23. And they wrote letters by them affirming this manner. The apostles, there it is again, the elders and the brethren, all of them send greeting unto the brethren which are at, uh, of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria in Cilicia. Now, brethren, what we see here in our text this morning, as Luke records, the Holy Ghost, if you will, clearly induced, if you will, a confederacy concerning the biblical content of these letters. And those who were chosen, as we're going to see, not only did he bring a concerning the biblical content of the letters, but also the men who were to be sent concerning these things. In fact, if you looked at verse number 22, that's why I drew your attention to it. Look at verse 22. Look what it says. Then it pleased, or then pleased it. That is a glorious thing. In other words, that literally means that, uh, it, it literally means that it seemed good under the apostles, under the elders, and unto the whole church. But not only that, look who else it pleased. Look down there at verse 25. Look what the Bible says there in verse 25. It says, it seemed good unto us. So it was pleasing unto the elders, unto the church, unto the brethren. It also, as we look there, brother, to that text, it says, it seemed good unto us being assembled in one accord. <laughs> well, there it is again. There's that unity, that accord, if you will, uh, if you look at it, it literally means in harmony of minds. Because you know, right, when you trust in Christ, when you are given that gift of faith by him, what happens? You're given the gift of repentance, which is a changing of the mind concerning who Christ is. And literally, these brothers, the church, all of it, they're all in harmony. They're all in one accord in their minds concerning the doctrinal truths in the letters, and also who is going to be sent. And so, again, there's this harmony, there's this unity that we see in our text. We'll look at verse number 28. The other two are very important, but look at what is most important. Look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the what? To the Holy Ghost. There it is again, the Holy Ghost induced unity that we see amongst the church and amongst the elders and amongst the apostles. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these things necessary. Remember, we looked at that. Look at verse 30, 29. That they abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. And we remember that. What are we doing here? Why were they told to abstain from those things? Because the Gentiles were what? They were involved in those things which was causing division within the church. Because if you go to Leviticus, these are all things that apply to those who were in Israel at the time, and also for those who were sojourners, strangers within the land. They had to apply to this. Uh, it applied to them as well. It seemed good. In other words, what it is good to the Holy Ghost is not to add anything to the gospel. This is what it is. This is what they are clearly unified in. So, brethren, just again, it seemed good to the apostles. Well, 
what is an apostle? This is absolutely the apostles. An apostle can be a, if you will, a commissioner of Christ. But this is, particular word is a commissioner of Christ with miraculous power. It's an apostolos. It is having apostolic powers. You know, the one like we, like we see in the book of Acts. We see what? The apostle Paul raising dead people. We see shadows. We see handkerchiefs. That is apostolic power. This is what we're saying. This is the unity here amongst the church. It is this. That amongst the apostles, there is unity concerning what's in the letter and that we are not to add to the gospel. There's a beautiful thing there. Not only to the apostles, but also to the elders. It seemed good to the elders. The spiritual what? Under-shepherds of God's flock. So again, we see the importance here. The leadership. Those who are in unity concerning what's in the letters and concerning not adding anything to the finished work of Christ, which is really the whole context here. Not only that, it would be good, brethren, right, as we stand together this morning in unity, the whole church, and that word whole church there is interesting, that word whole, it's holos, it means every wit, it means the entirety. In other words, the whole church. So if I stood up this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, I started over here with Brother Dave and Michelle and started over here, and I said, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God? They would say yes. Do you believe you can be saved apart from him? They would say, no. That's unity. That's what we're talking about here. This is what we're talking about. Unity in who Christ is and how one is saved and justified. I could go down the rows. I could go down all the rows here. And if you're lost this morning, you wouldn't agree with me. But every saved person who has the Holy Spirit of God in them would say, yes, Brother Mike. We agree. It is in Christ alone, through faith alone. Through the word of God alone. We went through the solace. We would all agree. This is what we're talking about. This is what has happened within this Holy Ghost-led, if you will, confederacy. A holy unity concerning these fundamental things. The holos. The total being greater than the mere sum of the parts. All the parts. Every wit are present and working. Now, brethren, it's interesting. This word is used in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to turn there with me, if you would, this morning. Look at Mark chapter 12, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Again, keeping in mind that all the parts, every wit, everything is working together at the same time. This is the idea that we're seeing. And isn't this a glorious thing? Because those of us who have been involved in churches for a long time, especially fundamental churches, this rarely happens. Generally, it splinters and splits and goes here and goes there. Not over doctrinal things, over personal preferences over things that are not holy. And brethren, as Jesus prayed, I pray that they're one so that the world might know that what? That the Father sent me. This, brethren, is where you and I as Christians, as mature believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have to be careful. We have to allow our personal preferences to go away and simply focus on those things that are central. It's like we were praying in, this morning in, in our office. It's the essential things. I understand when someone has a doctrinal issue with me or with us, with the church. I understand that. They, they leave. I've done that. But it was over doctrinal things, not things that are petty, at least in our minds, things that are not essential. Look here at Mark chapter 12. This word is used. It's a very familiar portion of scripture to us. In fact, it's used four times in our text, and I want you to see this. Again, every wit, all the parts working together. Look at Mark chapter 12. Look there at verse number 
29. Look what the Bible says there. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So again, this is Jewish. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Remember, this is what we are and what is written in the Old Testament. But look at the next verse. This is where it's used four times. All the parts working together. Look what it says. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy, all thy heart. In other words, the whole heart of your man. You're supposed to love the Lord your God. This is the idea. This is the unity that the Spirit of God has brought concerning these doctrinal issues that they're dealing with at the Council of Jerusalem. The heart. Look at the second thing. And all thy soul. The heart, the soul, the inward man. In other words, all these parts working together. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all of our soul. Look at this. And all thy strength. Well, 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 I missed one. Hold on. And all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. This is the idea. This is what's being displayed by the Spirit of God, which, brother, brothers, as someone who's been in church for 30 years, I've rarely seen this. Rarely. May the Lord grant unto us the grace to be as this first century church is, as they're dealing with these doctrinal issues, that we would be unified in those things, and then what? We'd have some liberty outside of those things. Now, the problem is sometimes I've been the problem, <laughs> and so have you. So have you. And it's interesting as we consider this thing, the holos, all the parts are present and working. Look at Galatians chapter 5. It's used over there, too. Look at Galatians chapter 5, and it has everything to do with the gospel. Again, why was the book of Galatians written? Why was it written, brethren? You know why. Because they were trying to add what to the gospel? What were they adding to the gospel? Circumcision. Just one Jewish little thing. That's all we're going to do. You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've got to add circumcision, which is what we're talking about here in our text. They were adding that one thing to the gospel, and Paul says, you need to be what? You need to be condemned. You should burn in hellfire for adding anything to the gospel as he opens that letter up. But look at here what he says, Galatians chapter 5. Again, he shows the futility, brethren, of one trying to be saved by keeping the law. Over and over and again, you see this over and over and over again. Paul's the gospel alone preaching. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse number 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Again, this circumcision thing, this thing that was hoisted upon them in verse number 1 of chapter 15 when Paul stood up and he's going to fight them because of the words that they use, adding one thing to the gospel. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole laws. Whole laws. The whole law. So in other words, what Paul is saying there is that if you think you're going to be saved by the law, you've got to do every wit, every part, everything working all together. And brother, and that's impossible. That's why he's saying that. You've got to keep the whole law. If you think you're going to be saved by the law, you've got to keep it all, all of it, every part, every wit. This is why he's writing this to them. It is impossible. It is impossible for that to take place. In fact, James writes of it too. The whole laws, it's called. Look there, if you would, at James chapter 2. Again, he is, uh, who is he addressing? He's addressing Jewish Christians, those who have came out of the disperse, 
those who have been dispersed. He's writing unto them, those who have been converted to Christ from Judaism. And look what he says here in chapter 2 again. Again, the holos, the law, the whole thing, every part, every wit, looking, working together. Look what he says there in verse number, uh, chapter 2, look at verse number 8. Look at there what he writes of concerning that. If ye fulfill the royal law, what's the royal law? According to the scripture, thou shalt love the, thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. So that's the royal law. And brethren, that's another one. If we would do that, if we would apply the royal law to our brothers and sisters liberally, we would have a lot less splits, a lot less segregating, a lot less of this and that. We really would. And that starts with me, brethren. It starts with me. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Ye do well. Look at verse 9. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convic convinced of the, the law of transgressors. There's the law again. For whosoever shall keep the whole laws, the whole law, and yet offend at one point, he's guilty of all. So again, brethren, he's condemning that. You can't be saved by keeping the law because you can't keep the law, and if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of it all. All of it. It's an amazing thing here when you consider that. Brethren, consider this for a moment. The elders, the whole church, all of it working together, all the parts working together to address this most urgent doctrinal matter. Because why, brethren? It goes to the soul of men, to the soul of those who are hearing, to the souls of those who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the inner man. It goes to salvation itself. And again, that's the only time you see Paul standing up wanting to fight somebody because it has to do with this important matter of the soul, the inner man, that which lives forever. The holy consensus among the apostles, the elders, and the whole church reflects, it does reflect, brother, if you will, the supernatural work of the Spirit upon those submitted souls. And that's the idea, the Spirit of God causing us and allowing us to submit to that, to submit to one another, to submit to the good doctrine and to stay unified, that the world may know that God sent Christ to save the world. That, that's, that's an important phrase in that text that we read. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Now look back there at our text. Two men appear, and they appear prominently, and I want us to look at those two men for just a moment. Acts chapter 15, look there, if you would, at verse 22. Acts 15, look at verse 22 again. Then, it ple then pleased it the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surname Barsabbas, and Silas. Here we have uh, Judas and, and uh, Silas coming to the forefront. It's an amazing thing. And again, this was in agreement because the Bible says that they're chosen men. So in other words, those who were in agreement chose those men to send them with the letters. Look at verse 27. There they are again. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. So they're going to be preachers. They're going to come, and that which was written in the letters is going to be preached unto them. Look at one more verse. Look at verse 32. There they are again. And Judas and Silas being prophets. Look what it says. Being prophets also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. The Spirit of God reveals to us here the holy consensus, as I said, concerning the men who would confirm the content of the letters. And again, this is important, isn't it, brethren? That doctrine is confirmed. 
by those who are leaders in the church. And we notice immediately in our text how Judas and Silas are described. And this is what I love. These are the kind of men. These are the kind of men that God will use. Amen? God makes these kind of men. I want you to see how they're described concerning those to whom he's going to use to carry the letter, to take the letters to the churches. Look there again, if you would, at verse 22. The Bible says that Judas and Silas are what kind of men? To send chosen men, first of all, of their own company to uh, Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. What are chief men? Well, chief men, brothers, are leaders. Leaders who lead the way and have a huge sway concerning spiritual matters. So they were chosen because they're chief men, not because they think they're the best or the haughtiest, but because they were leaders who would lead in the spiritual uh, matters of the church. Not only are they chief men, and they have this, all this spiritual influence, if you will, but look at verses 25 and 26. Look at the kind of men they are. Again, this, is, this has been written down for all of eternity, these kind of men. Not only are they chosen, which we're going to see again, but they hazarded their lives for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there, if you would, at uh, verse 25. Look what it says there. It seemed good unto us being assembled in one accord, harmonious in mind, the liberals like that word harmonious, right, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, that they hazarded their lives? Well, I'm glad you asked. It means to yield up. It literally means to be given over to risk. This is the kind of men that they were. They were hazarding their lives. They were given over to it. They were given over by the Spirit of God to hazard their lives for the gospel of Christ. Not only that. Look at verse 32 again. This glorious description in all of eternity that's written down forever of these two men. Look at verse number 32. And Judas and Silas, being prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. So again, written down for all of eternity and the eternal record is that these men are prophets. Well, what does that mean? They were foretellers of the word of God who exhorted, Paul says, listen, or Luke writes, it means to beseech and call the brother near. In other words, God's using them. Hey, you take these words of life, you call them near. That's what that word literally means, to beseech. Not only that, they exhorted, delivered the epistle. What? The written down message. That's what they're bringing. We've had a discussion at the council. We've had some doctrinal error that's tried to sneak in concerning salvation. We're going to fight this to the bitter end. We must reestablish what you've already known. Brethren, again, if, if I ever get up in front of the church and ever utter anything, any scintilla of anything concerning salvation and adding something to it, I know the other elders for sure will come and tackle me and take me down. But I pray all the men of the church will do the same. Something's gone awry if one adds to the gospel. Something's happened to you. And you better not be standing in front of people who are listening to you. It's a soul-damning thing. But look there, if you would, verse 30. And so when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered them all together, they delivered the epistle, which, which what? Which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And so again, we see this. So they're affirming the gospel. They're affirming that it is Christ alone through faith alone. Uh, that's the kind of gospel we're talking about in Christ alone. 
Well, listen here if you would. Verses 30 and 31. That epistle was written with soul-saving words that destroyed the soul-subverting words that were written earlier in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Again, this is counteracting that which is false. Look at verse 24. For as much as we have heard that certain men which went out from us, which they did not, they were never commissioned by the apostles to go and preach anything but the gospel. For as much as we have heard that certain men which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting what? Your souls. There it is again, brethren. It's the inner man. It's that gospel that's being preached that enters down into the little hearts of the little girls up here and those who are sitting here lost who hear the word of God when God opens their ears to hear it. It is one of those things. Now, that word subverting means to corrupt, to confound, to pervert the mind, to turn it from truth. This, again, is what they're counteracting. This is the importance of our text. This is why it's important, brethren, that as we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are one with the Father, we are one with his gospel. That's what ties us together in unity. Now, we take note that after this, uh, after God uses Judas... Barsabbas here, he never appears again in Luke's inspired narrative. This is the only place that he's used. It's an amazing thing when you consider that. However, Silas, as we know, is used. Uh, he was a Hellenistic Jew before his conversion and a Roman citizen just like Paul. He continues to be an instrument used by God to propagate the glorious gospel. This is what it is. Judas is gone. In fact, there are many, if you look in Acts chapter 1, you remember when they were going to replace Judas. Remember that? And they, draw, they, they, they got two men. In fact, let's just go there and look together. Look at Acts chapter 1 real quick. Let me show you this. Many believe that Judas and this man were brothers. And uh, again, same thing with Joseph. You never hear him again. You hear him once here in Acts chapter 1, just like, if you will, Judas here. But look at Acts chapter 1 quickly there, this portion of Scripture, if you will. The Bible says in verse 23, uh, and they appointed to Joseph called Barsabbas. So there are many who believe that this Joseph is Judas's brother in Acts 15, and I happen to believe that it is too. The Barsabbas name gives it, that it ties them together. And again, they have this thing in unity, or if you will, in common in the text in that they are never mentioned again. Even here, Judas is never mentioned again. Silas, as I said, is continued to be used by God to propagate the glorious gospel of Christ around the world. In fact, look at verse 34. Look what it says there. Notwithstanding, it pleased who? Silas to abide there still. There Silas is mentioned. No more Judas. Never again. Not after that text. Look at verses 40 and 41. Paul chose Silas and departed, uh, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. There it is again. Reestablishing, affirming, if you will, fixing them on the sound gospel teaching. Look at Acts chapter 16, just over a chapter. Again, we see Silas, again, in a very important role as, as we know this text well. Look at verse number 25, Acts chapter 16. Look at verse number 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. There they are, those brothers. They're together, amen. They're in prison. Uh, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them again, remember? So again, this is an important portion of the text of the book of Acts, the, the, the inspired narrative. Look there, if you will, just ahead a little bit farther. Look at verse 29. And then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I can't wait to get to that text. 
But there again, we see God using this instrument, Silas, continuously all the way to the end. In fact, let's look at one more, one more text where he is mentioned the last time in the New Testament. And brethren, you know what he is? He's a carrier of the message for Peter. It's an amazing thing. We see him here in the book of Acts, one who carries the message, takes the letters to the churches. Well, guess what he did to the letter of 1 Peter? Turn with me there if you would. Again, the last time we see him written down in Holy Writ, we see him here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's an amazing thing um, because, again, what is Peter constantly battling? What are they battling all the time? The gospel, adding nothing to it, Christ alone. I mean, on and on and on. It never ends. But look there, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse number 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. There it is again, just Christ alone. After that ye have suffered a while, uh, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look at verse 12. By Savanus, that's Silas. By Silas what? What did Silas do? A faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Again, Silas being around what? The gospel of Christ alone. But yes, the first letter of 1 Peter was sent by Silas to the church. They used him, again, God used him again the last time that we see him. He's still a carrier of God's soul-saving words. It is truly an amazing thing. Now, brothers, let me close with just a practical point, if I can. Many of us remember R.C. Sproul. Many of us remember him. In fact, a reporter wrote this. R.C. Sproul pointed out that the documents, the ECT, we remember this, evangelicals and Catholics together, discussion of justification by faith omitted the all-important word alone. You guys remember this. If you've read it and you've heard about it, you understand what I'm talking about. In other words, R.C. Sproul got together with some evangelicals who softened the gospel. They were getting together with the Roman Catholics, and they were saying, hey, all these Catholics now are our brothers. I mean, literally, remember I said at the tick of a clock? That's what Spurgeon said. At a tick of a clock, some evangelicals turned away from the faith turned away from the true gospel of Christ, and with words simply said, yes, they're all our brothers and sisters now. Brothers and sisters, no, they are not. I know that sounds harsh and mean, but when it comes to the gospel, we mustn't ever compromise. Even if you want to say that, you can't say that. Because if you add one thing to the, one thing to the gospel, it's done. Christ is null and void to you, and null and void to your salvation. But listen to what he, this reporter says. By deliberately omitting that word and acting as if, there, if it were a non-issue, the Protestants, I'll name a couple of them, J.I. Packer, who you're all familiar with, and Bill Bright for sure, who helped draft the ECT document, were deliberately capitulating to the main Roman Catholic error and undermining the gospel itself. Yes, that's what they were doing. They were in confederacy with them. They were in an unholy unity with them. What do you think the Reformation is about? It's about God hanging and keeping his, what? His remnant all through history. The Baptists, yes. Yes. Keeping them all through, bringing them into the 1500s, where a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther 
looks and goes, wait a minute. <laughs> I look in Romans, and what do I see? Romans chapter 1, again, that great verse. Amen? I mean, what Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, and also for the Gentile. For it is written, brethren, in Habakkuk, the Old Testament, a man shall live by faith. It's faith. This is what they're fighting for. Now listen as the reporter finishes. R.C. literally, as we know, climbed up on the table, making the plea on his hands and knees of the tabletop. This man's writing what R.C. is doing. He's up on the table on his hands and knees. Listen to this. This is something that I hadn't heard before. He says he's on his hands and knees on the tabletop until each person on the other side of the table had made direct eye contact with him. And there wasn't a hint of malice in what he was doing at all. But he got up on the table and looked at the others on the other side and made direct contact with them. And we remember what he said. He said directly, the reporter says, into their eyes, we're talking about salvation here. We're talking about how one is justified and is made right with God. You can't snap your fingers with the devil and simply say, Yes, they're all brothers now because they are not. It's an amazing thing. How does that apply to us today? Well, the battle still rages, brethren. It still rages on. It rages on every week. Every week when you go around the Lord's table, every day for some, as they bow down and worship the host, as they bow down and think the host is, well, becomes the body of Christ as we know. Every day it rages. And it isn't just with them. It rages with any religion, as I said. You remember all of those religions. Brethren, I'm going to close. I know. Practical point. Every other religion, every other system, every one, there's 40, over 4,200 of them. Every other one, brothers, adds something to the gospel. It is Christianity alone that says it's Christ alone. By faith alone, through grace alone, by the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? This is what our text is doing. It's showing a unity there that's amongst the brethren, that is Holy Ghost induced. It has to be for the elders and for all of them that are there, the whole church, all of them, in unity saying, Amen. This is what we must do. Amen? Let me close with this. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. That they also might be sanctified through the truth. That's caveat number one, the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word caveat number two that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me do you see the importance he ties to that to brothers being in unity and in harmony and in one accord with one another concerning these glorious things Jesus said, In the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know. See, Jesus says it twice, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Let's pray together. Father, we are always stunned and amazed at the work that the Holy Ghost does in the lives of those who are his. Father, we have seen a very important text this morning concerning his work and what he did there. The whole church, the elders and the apostles, all of them were in complete unity and holy agreement with one another. And it wasn't over eschatology, or, and eschatology is important. I, I don't like that when people say it doesn't matter. It does matter. Unless you're some kind of a raging heretic on it, you're still a child of God if you've trusted in Christ. So we can certainly be, we can have our disagreements on these matters and still love one another and care for one another and still be one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we're going to see next week, right, as we talk about unity, there's a division that takes place. But it was not over the gospel. It was over John Mark. So, Father, we see again the importance of the church, of the leaders in the church, and the brothers, the sisters, the church as a whole. I'm I'm talking about the body that meets in the local churches. How important it is that we are unified and show forth to the world a unified front concerning these things. Again, I was really caught off guard, never thought about it before, as Spurgeon wrote. You never see the evil one and his confederates fighting. It isn't even written of. It's a stunning thing. But for some reason, he fires them darts into the local church. He causes much heartache and hurt and division over things that just should not be. And Father, again, if we would love one another and care for one another, and and, uh, as the Lord, as we read his words, if we would love our neighbors ourselves, oh, what unity we could see. We could put aside our own things. That's hard to do. I know. I understand it. I've, I deal with it myself a lot. And I'm sure many do here as well. But Father, may we go forth as the Spirit of God applies these words we've heard today to our hearts and to our minds. May we be as one with a unified, holy gospel message that the world must hear that others might It's amazing we turn on each other. It's a stunning thing. Again, going back to Spurgeon, you never see that with the evil one and his confederates. But we turn on each other. It's a stunning thing. So, Father, will you give that to us? Will you grant that to us deep down in our hearts, deep down in our souls and in our minds, that we might 
again, pray for one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, and love one another, forgive one another, all of these things. Father, we ask by the power of the Spirit that he would do that for each of us. And Father, now as we turn our religious affections to the table, we are again reminded of the great price that was paid that which we could never pay for ourselves. There's, our debt is so great, one could never pay it. But there is one who paid it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sinless and perfect. He lived a perfect, holy life. He was, went to the cross. He set his face, the Bible says, as a flint to Jerusalem. He went there, and he died there. He shed his life blood for sinners. He became sin, that we might become his righteousness. What a stunning exchange. What a glorious thing. And Father, it is in that that we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this morning as we are gathering, we do indeed, as Paul said, we do proclaim his death till he comes again. We believe it. We believe every word that he will come, that he will reign, that he will come for his church his bride, that which he alone made spotless and without wrinkle because of his work. Father, it's in his name that we pray. The Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.